It's good to be with you here this morning at Kempsville Prez. I remember uh, coming up uh, many years ago, early 70s, when Rock Church was growing and expanding, and we went by this church and we prayed all the time for you. And uh, I came last year and spoke in the Tuesday night meeting. It's good to be back. But uh, to be here in your Sunday morning service, and I just sense I'm among a people that God just has a grasp on you. And it's like Paul says, I want to grasp or try and understand why he's got a hold on me. And this is a wonderful feeling to know he's got you in his hand and you, you know, he's not going to let go and you don't want him to. And you're people pursuing and trying to disciple yourselves and others and it's wonderful to see this fellowship here and to be with you this morning. Um, I want to thank uh, Maria Umedi for uh, also hosting me, helping open the door, and uh, her husband, Dr. Umedi from Regents, is out of the country right now. Also want to thank Bob and uh, Mo Murray, who are hosting me in their home uh, a little this week as I travel uh, on about a month-long speaking tour and get to see my family down on the Outer Banks and do a little fishing and surfing and crabbing and uh, fishing and did I mention surfing? <laughs> no, I got about 20 churches to, to hit, but we'll have a little time for the fun of summer on the Outer Banks. I'm not even going to ask how many of y'all been down there because I know you all have. Um, and after we're through, I'll be out the back door at our table where you've been gracious enough to allow us to uh, set up some free material to hand out and some books and tapes and such. Uh, a lot of times I get caught, so caught up in the Word of God, I need to do my announcements now. I was asked about, uh, do I have any PowerPoint or video to show? And I said, no, and thank God, I don't think I can ever top Sam the announcement man. <laughs> that is a hard act to follow. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah 49 and verse 22. Isaiah 49 verse 22, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. I'm speaking this morning about the unique Gentile role in the modern-day restoration of Israel. And it's first uh, important to, to talk a little bit about the restoration of Israel before we get to the Gentile role. Bible scholars say there were around 300 prophetic passages in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming and that there are around twice as many Old Testament prophecies concerning his second coming 
and most of them uh, are centered around the, uh, a process of Israel's uh, restoration to the land and then restoration to God to where uh, they're at the point where they're finally ready to receive their king under the promises of not only the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, but the Davidic covenant. And, and he will take up the throne of David just as God promised David long ago. And to this, all the prophets agree, and it's affirmed over and over by, uh, in the New Testament by Jesus and the, and the writers of the New Testament. Jesus himself, weeping over Jerusalem, said, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch Ababa Shemadonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, you're going to say it to me until you say to me. And this was a traditional greeting for uh, pilgrims that would come up, especially at the fall feast of tabernacles. Christian embassy where I work, we put on an annual fall feast every year. But this was uh, actually coming from the book of Psalms, chapter 118. And so they developed this greeting, but it was also something they knew it was reserved for this Messiah that had been promised to them as a special greeting for him. And do you know what's just a few verses before it? Psalm 118, just about five verses before it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus was a, sort of in the Pharisaic tradition. Whenever he would quote a certain scripture, the people he was speaking to were expected to know the context and the other scriptures out around it. And he would quote one verse and you sort of had to know what the whole, and you know, this is why we study the word, they would do it. And so the people he was speaking to, they knew the prior reference to it. And he was saying, one day you're going to receive me as king. This is assured in the word of God, even in the New Testament, Paul in Romans 11 speaking about the restoration of Israel in the last days, this physical ingathering that then becomes a spiritual ingathering back to God. He said to the church in Rome, these Gentile believers, he said, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery hidden in the Old Testament, lest you be wise in your own opinion. That hardness in part, this Jewish rejection of Jesus that was placed there for redemptive purpose, he says it's only there for a while until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And then all Israel will be saved for it is written that a deliverer will come out of Zion and take away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We're talking about a covenant promise of God to take away Israel's sins, and there's only way sin can be taken away and removed from our lives. And that's through the cross. And if it says it's a covenant promise, every covenant in the Bible was made by God by sworn oath. He, he couldn't find anyone else to swear by, so he swears by himself. And the same hand that ra was raised in an oath 
that said, thou art a priest forever. The eternal priesthood of Jesus is based on the same promise-keeping character of God that made the promise, I'm going to save Israel. So Israel's physical restoration that we see in modern times is part of a process that ends with their salvation and their repentance before God, getting it right before him, and, and inviting Jesus to come and take up the throne of David. There's lots of things in Bible prophecy in the end days that are dark and, and foreboding, but this is the bright side of prophecy that our ministry tries to work upon. And it is the sure promise of the Word of God, a mystery hidden in the Old Testament, revealed to the apostles and affirmed everywhere in the Word of God. But the Bible also speaks about a unique Gentile role in this process of Israel's physical and then spiritual in-gathering, that all those nations, when Israel was scattered abroad as a corrective measure, that with their scattering, the gospel went out to all nations and all those Gentiles out there who are going to be touched by the gospel to follow this Jewish rabbi who gave his life for us, that... Uh, <clears throat> that these uh, Gentiles who were touched, one day they're going to help the Jewish people come back to the land and come back to God. A special role preserved for them. And the book of Isaiah probably has the most sort of, uh, you know, the prophets sometimes they like to wax poetic. And it has some of the most poetic passages about this, uh, the most descriptive uh, passages that starts basically around Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 comfort ye comfort ye my people uh, it, it's it's speaking to someone it says comfort ye comfort ye my people says your God he's speaking to a people who calls themselves by God but it's not the Jewish people you understand you who are called by my name you go and comfort my people the Jewish people and speak tenderly to them Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Your warfare is almost ended. Your iniquities are pardoned. And you've received already from the Lord's hand double for your sins. They've been punished. Exile is the punishment prescribed by God. It's a day of ingathering and restoration and favor of God. And God even says in Isaiah 60, I will use these Gentiles. They'll bring in the wealth of the Gentiles to you when I'm regathering to your land. And then he describes it as the favor of God upon them. That when these Gentiles come and are help and bring their wealth and whatever else to help restore Israel, he says, he says to Israel, look, in my anger I struck you, but in my favor I'm having mercy on you. How? Through Gentile mercy. It says even the sons of those who once oppressed you are going to get involved in this. We have German Christians and, and uh, Austrian Christians and others throughout Europe who live in countries where, you know, the, the Jews didn't always have it easy. And even right through the Holocaust were, were persecuted and exterminated by the millions who are now Bible-believing Christians who love Jesus and they love Israel and they're helping in this modern-day return. But the most incredible, I believe, you know, the poetic and descriptive 
uh, imagery we have of this phenomenon of Gentile mercy and comfort and assistance in the restoration of Israel is Isaiah 49 and verses 22 and 23. The first thing it says, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations. And this is a very unusual Hebrew phrase that if you compare different Bible translations, you see the translators are sort of struggling a little with, with conveying what it's trying to say here. Some will say, I'll, I'll uh, lift up a banner. I'll lift my hand in an oath. Here's sworn oath. Uh, I'll beckon or I'll wave to the Gentiles. Some say I'll whistle. I'll whistle. And I think the best way to understand what God is trying to say here uh, is to draw a modern day analogy. It's what you do when you're late for the airport. You've got to get to the uh, Norfolk airport because you're you know, flying off somewhere for a, a meeting or something, or better yet, a vacation in Puerto Rico or somewhere. And, uh, and you're late, and you're out on the street corner trying to catch a taxi and you're waving and you're whistling trying to get those taxis stop I need to get to the airport you're waving you're whistling you're you know shouting amen God says this is not something that I'm going to go to some dear saint in her little prayer closet who you know spends hours praying to the Lord and I'm going to go and whisper to her oh guess what the Jews are coming back and and my hand is in it, and I want you to be a part. No. God says, I'm going to be in the face of those Gentiles who are called by my name. And I'm going to be out there waving and beckoning and whistling and saying, come on, get involved in this. This is my hand. So we have no excuse if we don't understand it, many look at the, the phenomena in modern times for most of the church history, the, the, the Christians, those who the followers of Jesus, they were cruel to the Jews. They thought they were cursed for rejecting Jesus, and so they rejected them and never gave them a place to rest their feet and thought they were doing God's work. Some of the Holocaust survivors that we meet in Israel they have trouble, you know, sometimes until, you know, the love that we show them breaks some of it down, but they were in concentration camps where the German soldiers, it was a German issue, uh, buckle belt, God is with us, written in German. They thought they were doing God's work, beating up the Jews some more. But God says there's going to be a generation when Israel starts coming back that finally gets it and gets touched in their heart and I'm going to be out there in their faces saying, get involved. This isn't some little trend or, you know, passing thing like laughter hitting the church or, or whatever, which we, we need to laugh. I'm not dismissing whatever, but sometimes little things come along and everyone, and then it goes, this is a, an eternal work of God touching Gentile hearts to help in the restoration of Israel, knowing that their physical ingathering ends in a spiritual ingathering, that in their repentance and their invitation to Jesus to finally receive him, doesn't, don't you know this is what you and I are looking for as well? And it's connected. He's coming back for those who love 
his appearing, as our sister says. But you have to understand it's also connected to Israel's salvation and God finishing this promise, prophetic work in them. And we cannot ignore it anymore, thinking it's some little passing thing. It's, it's something that God is putting before us and even requiring of us in the church. He wants us to reach all kinds of nations with the gospel, and we need to do this. Jesus said this gospel will be preached in all nations, and then the end shall come. But he also said, the Jews have to receive me too. Two requirements. And we have, I've I've been to all kinds of nations. Guatemala, Kenya, I've been to Haiti. I've had a heart for the nations. And God wants us to have this. It's a part of your ministry and part of your church. We have to have it. But what nation gave you this? What nation gave you your Messiah? Can you show a little mercy for them and open your heart to them in their day of need? It says, they shall bring your sons in your, their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. This physical ingathering. I can tell you at the Christian Embassy, we have photos in our photo archives of some of our teams, in, especially in helping with the Russian Aliyah from the former Soviet Union when communism fell. There were uh, about 1.2 million uh, Jews from Uh, uh, the Soviet Union, Soviet Jews that made Aliyah to Israel over the next 10, 15 years. We've helped 115,000 Jews make it home to Israel in the last 25 years, most from the former Soviet Union. We have photos of some of our team members picking up handicapped uh, Jews from their wheelchairs, carrying them up. You know, this was days when not every airport had gates at the level of the plane. You had to carry them up steps put them on their seat, and then when you land in Israel, they were still landing out on the tarmac, and you had to carry them down the steps and put them back in their wheelchair. A literal fulfillment of the Word of God. Kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. Then they shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth, and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. I want to deal with this uh, imagery of someone bowing down and, you know, it's, it's not such uh, a nice picture of licking the dust off of someone's feet. I don't have any actual photos of some of our teams doing that. It is figurative. You take scripture in context, You can have literal and figurative right side by side. This is figurative. In the Middle East, the ancient tradition is that after you've been on a long journey and you come to the house of your guest, I come to Bob and Mo Murray to their house, and the first thing your host would do, you were probably wearing sandals, open-toed sandals, no socks, and uh, your, your feet were dusty, you'd been walking. And the first thing they would do is sit you down, get a pot of water, bucket of water, and wash your feet. And this was not only the practical thing that you're not gonna uh, track dust all through their house and in their carpet, but uh, it was symbolic. It was saying, 
you've, you've been traveling. I know it's a hard journey. And you are now home. You can relax. My home is your home. This was the ancient tradition. And here it says there's going to be Christians who humble themselves and in this symbolic way. It's, it's more about the humility of the message, Israel, your home. Some Christians have trouble with it. Well, don't they still reject my Jesus? The promise of God is that he would gather them while they were still in unbelief, still rejecting Jesus for the purpose of bringing them to belief back in the land. Isn't that how he captured your heart and my heart? God didn't wait for me to get cleaned up. Some Christians say, no, he should get them saved first. And then, no, it's the favor of God. It was the favor of God on you and me that while I was still in unbelief and while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And the the promise and purpose of God. I'm going to, even if they don't deserve it yet, I'm going to bring them back in my favor. I'm going to, part of this favor, the Gentiles helping, and it's back in the land where they get it right with God. And these Gentiles are going to be saying, you've had a long journey, and it was for our sake. You're casting out, brought riches to us. You're ingathering. How much more? Life from the dead. Wonderful spiritual benefits. This is what's going to usher the world into the messianic age and, the, and, and, and that righteousness and peace of the rule of Jesus over the earth that, it, that, that this, this world so needs. It's the most important thing. This is why God has his grip on us. That Israel will serve as a birthing mechanism. They birthed the word of God, the worship of God. What nation did you get? What nation gave you the fact you raise your hands to worship the Lord? Worship him, you know, with cymbal and and drums and all of this and and all that we receive from them. And it says that through this Gentile mercy, Israel is going to somehow capture something of the hand of God back on them. It says, through this, then you will know that I am the Lord, that my hand's doing this. Those Gentiles who used to oppress you and kick you around the nations and beat you up some more, thinking they were doing God's work. You know, they're going to show mercy this time. I tell you, the Jewish people look around at the threats around them, the, you know, the, the terrorism and the rockets and now the Iranian nuclear threat that's building over that nation. And they look around and, and all the UN votes stacked against them, people trying to boycott and whatever. And they say, look, do we have any friends left? And besides their, you know, Jewish cousins around the world, the only people who are really standing with them these days are Bible-believing, born-again Christians. It's a work of God, and it's a great challenge to them. These followers of this rabbi that we rejected, and they say is the Messiah, I'm telling you, God is using it to break down the walls and that resistance to Jesus as we show them mercy and humble ourselves even while they're still in unbelief and still in rejection God's using it to bring them to redemption we're going to go back up to this thought of kings being foster fathers queens 
nursing mothers. Do you know that the Queen of England, Queen Victoria, back around 1855, she actually chartered under the crown of the British Empire the first fund to help settle Jews back in the land of Israel. There weren't many Jews coming back yet. There were some that lived there, but they were paupers. They were impoverished, uh, you know, living off handoffs from uh, Jewish pilgrims visiting the land. But this queen, God moved on her heart. She had heard all the preachers in, in Britain at that time preaching what was called restorationism. They believed it was time for God to bring the Jews back to the land and that Britain, because of her worldwide empire at the time, was uniquely positioned to help in this great global ingathering of the Jews. She bought into it even with her own money and put it in a fund that that charter document that she signed under the crown in 1855 or something, there is still, that fund still exists today in the form of Bank Laomi, one of Israel's uh, two or three largest banks. Can you imagine your, 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 your bank? Where do you do your banking? That bank was started by the Queen of England because she knew God had promised to restore Israel. I'm going to move some money over there <laughs> to that bank. I, this is speaking to me. <laughs> we think of kings. Uh, well, you know, we don't have a king. We rejected that. I, I'm, I'm a monarchist. I'm an American, and I love our democratic system, but at heart, I have uh, kingdom loyalty. I have a coming king. And I, my wife's Dutch. They have a queen and king and all this sort of stuff. I think, you know, it's kind of silly these days, especially when they no longer can really claim they are there by divine right. But there's one who will come and rule by divine right and authority because he paid for it on the cross. And he's my king and he's your king and he's Israel's king. He came to Israel lowly, riding on a donkey. He's going to come back on a white horse and take up his throne. But here in America, these, uh, the, the idea of maybe a king, a, a ruler, you had John Adams speaking of the restoration of Israel back in the early 1800s. Even Abraham Lincoln, after he uh, won his second election, he was, uh, uh, there are, there's documents now in, in some of the uh, research that's been done on him. He was ready to start uh, committing America to help regather the Jews. Did you know this? He's sitting in Ford's theater, and he says to his wife, his last words before he was shot and assassinated and taken from us, he said to her, I think we're going to take a trip to Jerusalem. It was very popular in those days to get on a steamship and go up the Nile and see the pyramids in Cairo. Mark Twain did it, and then go to Jerusalem and see the ruins, and it was all still in ruins. But somehow he, he had it on his heart if he had lived, Israel's restoration might have been a little different. It was Harry Truman who was faced with the question of whether to recognize Israel in 1948. And everyone in his State Department and everyone in his uh, Department of Defense were saying, don't do it. 
Those Arabs are going to drive them into the sea. You're going to have another holocaust just a, a few years after the Nazi genocide against the Jews. Don't do it. And the State Department said don't do it. Most of them came from Russia and they're Bolsheviks. They're going to fall under the Soviet or orbit. Don't do it. But Harry Truman, his mother steeped him in the Bible. He was a good Baptist. And he, he you know, someone asked him, do you know the, the historic importance of what you're doing here when he recognized Israel? He said, yes, I know. I am Cyrus. This king from ancient history who issued a decree about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He said, I'm Cyrus. I know what I'm doing. Because he believed in it. What I want to talk now, though, is this uh, analogy to being foster fathers and nursing mothers. I can't speak much about being a nursing mother for obvious reasons, but it's also uh, sort of it used to be a profession and we have other ways of n nourishing children when they're born young and the mother can't give milk these days but uh, that this relationship and uh, foster fathers they are unique surrogate relationships that God is speaking about here where someone is given a sacrificial love to to give of themselves for, to someone else in need and creating a substitute relationship of a foster parent or a nursing mother and to understand the the descriptiveness you fall back a few verses uh, in in chapter 49 uh, the the passage is talking about Israel's long journey out among the nations and how they've had it so rough uh, to the point that they were saying God has forsaken or abandoned us says verse 14 but Zion said the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me verse 15 God's answer can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb surely they may forget yet I will not forget see I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands your walls are continued before me and then it continues to talk about the sons and the daughters coming back quickly and God is saying you think you're you're forgotten and forsaken out here among the nations but when I set my hand to gather you here's how you're gonna know it's my hand there's gonna be these Gentiles helping and they're gonna you know you you thought you were a forgotten child where well, these Gentiles are gonna act like your parents your foster fathers substitutes with sacrificial love and I can speak of uh, the um, relationship of foster parenting or in my own case foster uh, foster brother back in the early 70s when our family really came into the things of the Lord on a Monday morning one day it was one of the first times that God really spoke to my father in such a clear crisp way he remembers it God asked him on a Monday morning will you open your home to me so that I can bring who I want this was basically what he's saying but he remembers those words he understood but the words will you open your home to me 
And the Lord said, well, Lord, can I talk to my wife? And I'll let you know tomorrow because <laughs> she's going to have to. The next day he went back in prayer and said, yes. The very next day, a Wednesday, we get a call from uh, the Dare County Social Services down on the Outer Banks. And apparently they had been looking at our family for a week or two that there was a kid in, uh, he was around 15, I was 13 at the time. He was a, a couple years older than me, but in my grade in junior high. And I, I knew him, but he had been kicked out of every other school in the county, in Manio and down on Cape Hatteras and whatever. And this was the last little Kitty Hawk school, the last school that uh, left in the county for them to put him. And he wasn't quite 16 yet, so he had to stay in school. And so they were looking at our school, and particularly our class, and looking at the families in the class and saying, who, where should we put this? And they looked through and they said, you know, that, that Parsons family, you know, you had to say, are, are they a good home? And would they be willing to open it up to take someone in? And this was just not someone at around 15. He had been in about uh, a dozen breaking and enterings. He was on drugs, on acid. Uh, you know, but God asked us on a Monday, we could get a call on a Wednesday, God had already, we, we, this lady with this testimony this morning, finding a home, all this, the perfect timing of God. On Friday, that boy was in our house. And I knew him, but I, I didn't know him this way. He, he, you know, he was a little, pot, not only a pothead, acid head. And that first night, in the middle of the night, he, we're sharing a room. It's my first foster brother, and and I hear this rolling in the night and this and this and I'll turn on the light and he's, he's got long hair, he's chewing his hair, he's rolling in his bed, listen to Uriah Heap, space, space trucking. How many can, how many know what I'm talking about there? I not only got a pothead, I got an acid head. And uh, you know, this is over the next eight years, uh, we were licensed as a foster home to take in kids that the social services would send us. Eventually, they stopped sending them because we were, we were giving them Jesus. <laughs> but that was the only reason that uh, they picked us in the first place. You know, those folks would be open to taking them. And I look back and, you know, we had some good successes in some of these kids that you gave them Jesus and some that uh, there, there was no victory there. Some of them were already so wounded and, and destroyed in their lives and their uh, parents beat them or their parents were dead or their parents were alcoholics and such as this. And it was not, uh, you know, you, you already had damaged kids and could you salvage something of their lives and head them in the right direction and even give them Jesus in some way. Am I going too long here? And af yes, after that, uh, we, we continued taking in unwed mothers and 60-year-old drunkards and whatever. God opened our house for many, many years. But even though we might have had some that didn't end in victory, the boy that we first took in, he died at 25 years old. He was drunk and fell down a set of stairs. He was already too damaged to turn around. 
And so, you know, sometimes you're disappointed at some of those phases. You didn't quite reach them in time or they were already too damaged. Some are walking with the Lord to this day. But what's amazing and what's lasting for me is the work of God that he did in my heart and in our family's heart, even my brother's. This notion of sacrificing, sacrificial love and substituting. You know, sometimes in these situations, you know, the kids might be jealous and, and whatever. But I remember my mother coming one day and saying, uh, you know, I feel that little Michael that we've taken in, his parents had died in an auto accident, that we, we need to give him a new bike. But I know you've got this old bike with a banana seat that's torn and this and that you know, and, and we feel bad. And I said, no, mom, you give him the bike. God did such a work in our hearts that we, we, we not only treated them as family, we actually wanted better for them than we wanted for ourselves. And these were special need kids that God gave us special love for. It wasn't necessarily instant. Sometimes it took a while. About the second or third child we took in, a little boy named Glenn. His dad was an alcoholic, and he had beat him so severely that this boy, he was 13 years old and still wet the bed. And he went around, I remember seeing him at school, and he smelled like pee. And uh, I was older then. This was one of, it was a few years later. It was one of the last children we, we took in. And I remember I'm a senior in high school. I'm on the football team, the basketball team. And, you know, I want to date cheerleaders. And I'm driving in my car and to school every morning and picking up my friend, whatever. And, uh, you know, now we take this boy in. He's in ninth grade. He's a ninth grader. I'm a senior. And it, it's not only, you know, he's one of the little kids, but but he smells like pee. And it was a little hard for me, you know. I got to pick up my friends with this boy in, in the car. And I, you know, my heart hadn't quite opened to him. And one morning on a Saturday morning, I'd been out a little late the night before, and I'm sleeping in a little, and my mom comes with him and says, uh, David, uh, you know, I had told her the night before I was missing $20 from my wallet. And she brings this little Glenn over and says, to my bed and says, David, uh, you know, I've got something to ask Glenn. I think he took you $20. Glenn, did you take it? He says, no. And she kept asking him, and I'm like, I, I, I just wanted to sleep. It's too early on a Saturday morning. I'm a teenager. And I said, Mom, it's okay. If he took it, it's all right. And she stayed there and kept asking him. And I'm like, Mom, I don't care. Even give him some more money. I want to sleep. I just want to sleep. <laughs> she stayed at it. And then there came this moment where Glenn finally broke. And he said, yes, I took it. The truth came off his lips. But what fell from heaven in that instant, mercy and truth kissed each other. It was a flow of the sweet mercy of God in that room. I had to sit up. And it just kept pouring and pouring. Glenn's crying, my mom's crying, I'm crying. 
I felt the love of God for that boy. I didn't care what he smelled like after that. And at school, all the kids would pick on him, and I'd go over there, you leave him alone, he's my brother. Talking about the work of God that he did in my heart. And God says he wants to do this with the Gentiles concerning Israel, to give you that sacrificial love for a people that are deeply wounded. Jeremiah says, your wound is incurable. Meaning no human hand can touch it, but God can use that flow of mercy from heaven if we'll open our hearts. My question to you, will you open your heart to Israel? I know this church already does. You have the Jewish heritage, some of you individually. I'm telling you it's a work of God. And it's not only what God will do for the Jewish people and bringing them back to the Father, saying it's the work of God in your heart. To say, even if they still reject my Jesus, I know that they're my future brothers and we have the same destiny in God that ultimately we're part of that same family. And I want to love them into the kingdom. This is what God is talking about here. Where the Jewish people, they've known hatred and anti-Semitism. It's called the longest hatred. And they study it and they study it and you still can't put your finger on, you know, what it is. Because it's spiritual. It's a spiritual battle. And then they see these Christians who love them and all. And, and they don't understand this. It's the mystery of love. Love's a mystery itself. Why, why did you fall in love with this lady or your wife? You know, why was my wife that special one? God working through uh, unfailing love, but an incomprehensible love through us to touch them, that through it it helps them recapture that sense of providence, the hand of God over them and bringing them to their ultimate redemption, which is promised by sworn oath by God himself. And we invite you to work with our ministry or other ministries. You still have to preach the gospel, minister to children, minister to families, and all the other things, your community, take the gospel to the nations, but open your heart to Israel too, because God's in it. Thank you.